You're listening to All The Best. I'm Danny Stewart. Before we get into this week's stories, I'd like to acknowledge that I'm recording from stolen Gadigal land and pay my respect to Gadigal elders, past and present, as well as recognize that the area where FBI radio is situated, Redfern, has long been a place of storytelling, strength, resistance and resilience for First Nations communities. This week, we're continuing our 500 retrospective series with another episode from our archives. The following episode, called The Block, captures a moment in time 12 years ago that still feels incredibly relevant for us to reckon with today. In 2010, the Pemilway Project was a topic of dispute in the Redburn community. The controversial project was to redevelop the block, an area of Redburn that provided housing and community for many First Nations people. The project ultimately went ahead despite the pushback, and the following stories explore what the block meant to those who lived in the area before the cultural hub was demolished. And a warning for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander listeners that this episode may contain names and voices of those who have passed on, and a heads up that there's also references to heavy drug use. Police, Police say they smashed a drug ring in Redfern. Seven people have been arrested after synchronised raids on two... Out of, out of our door. Last weekend, my mum was bashed and robbed. But nothing's improved. It is getting worse. In a community they call the block that 17-year-old Thomas Hickey fell from his bike yesterday... members of the Aboriginal community this is the block you might know, a place of riots, drugs and violence. The words the block have taken on an almost metaphorical significance in the media. So much so that it's easy to forget that the block is an actual address. It's had a rough history, sure, but like any community, it also held stories of friendship, faith and redemption. This is all the best. My name's Eliza Salos, and today we're spending our whole show in and around the block in Redfern. Before we begin the show, I would like to acknowledge and pay respect to the traditional owners of the land on which our story is set, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. It is upon their ancestral lands that our story takes place. Today we'll walk the streets of the block and trace through lines of family and memory. You'll hear stories of this community from the perspectives of those who are part of it. Let's begin by heading to one of the main streets that make up the block. In this story, we meet Yvonne Phillips. She grew up in Redfern and raised her family at number five, Vine Street. All my families live up there. Uh, Everly Street, Sunday Street, Glossen Street, Yego Street, Lewis Street. The voice you are hearing belongs to Yvonne. She is a 70-year-old Gadigal woman of the Eora Nation, and up until two weeks ago she lived with her husband at number 5 Vine Street, Redfern. A lot of people say they're Eora, but it's not true, you know. But I got about five or six generations out at La Perouse buried there, and um, I've never known anything but Redfern and La Perouse. Yvonne's story is a domestic one. 
of home, family and belonging. She's telling us this story around the kitchen table in her new house in Waterloo. And it's fitting then that the sound you can hear underneath her voice is one of the most domestic sounds of them all, the washing machine. Yvonne has lived in Redfern since she was born and she can still clearly remember the days when milk and bread were delivered by horse and cart. Back in those days, her family never lived in the one house for long. We always got moved around. You couldn't get houses because couldn't get jobs. My mum used to do ironing for people and go wash the clothes, you know, do things like that to earn some money. This was in the years before any government assistance and Yvonne's family found it quite hard to make ends meet. In the mid-1940s, when Yvonne was four or five, her family moved away from Redfern and settled into the Aboriginal community at La Perouse. She remembers her house-proud mum whitewashing the walls of their new home. When we moved out there, it was beautiful, really. It was about the happiest I think I ever spent my childhood at La Perouse. I was only a little bit, you know, but I liked it because we could go swimming in there. But a year or so after they settled in, the peace and stability that Yvonne and her family had created in La Perouse was shattered by a change in government policy. And anyway, this government comes out and they say we have to move. Shifted us all out. While we're still there, I can just remember it. They bulldozed the place down. And like I said, I was saying to Mum, what, what are we going to do, Mum? Where are we going to stay? She's just sitting there crying. Yvonne was five or six by this point. Her parents moved the family back to Redfern and they started looking for a new place to live. The Housing Commission offered affordable homes in the area, but Yvonne's family was not the only one waiting hopefully for a house. Some of them got some, some of them never. We were one of those that never. So we ended up just going house to house. It was a real hard life, you know. Half the time you were looking for a house and then the rent would go up, you'd have to get out of that. And then finally I ended up growing up, got married. My husband, he's a real political man, and he fought for that land down there. Oh, not just him, heaps of people. That land down there that Yvonne is talking about is, of course, the block as we know it today. In 1972, after years of campaigns and protests, the Aboriginal Housing Company secured permanent rights over the terrace houses on the streets of the block. Yvonne and her husband Richard were a newly married couple and they moved into Vine Street. There's never been a feeling that we had the day we walked into the block to take possession of the houses. You can't explain it. Like it's the spirit of the living God. He give you this place to go to and you all stood together as one and just walked into those houses and started a new life where nobody could throw us off. It was a beautiful spirit that was there. I loved it, you know. Yeah, everybody knew everyone. We'd all get out and have a sing-song together at Christmas time. And there were a lot of fights there and things like that. It wasn't a real innocent place, but it wasn't as like everywhere else, you know. You know, you paid your way. You had a house for life. So we thought, but anyway, it's real I love that little house. Two weeks ago, Yvonne and Richard were moved from their place on Vine Street to a terrace house in Waterloo. Yvonne likes the area. It's right near Redfern Oval and the neighbours are friendly. She says she wouldn't want to move back to the block again. I didn't really want to talk about it anymore because 
I want to move on now. You can't dwell in the past. I went in there the other day and it's just dead. There's no atmosphere of that peace that was there, that belonging place. Of no joy in it. No, uh, the spirit's gone from there. It's changed. Former block resident Yvonne Phillips telling her story of life in Redfern to Madeline James. We now head right into the block for Family and Culture Day, where we meet Yvonne's son, Shane. Uh, my name's Shane Phillips, so I live in the block, and um, uh, we this thing here, Family and Culture Day, is about building strength, building strong community, and um, letting the kids see all the great things that our people are all about. Well, we've had this on the block for the last two years, and it's it's helped us change and save this place because the block used to, it had a bad period where it was, had, it represented what was wrong with our people, the, the drugs, the, um, the, the drug abuse and the, it was, it, be, it was, became a place that didn't help our people at all. A few of us live in the houses and we, our children had to have somewhere strong to go and they come home and the place where they live was, um, you know, it was, um, People using heroin around the place and people drinking around the place. It wasn't wasn't a place where kids can thrive. And we just got together and said, enough's enough. What are we going to do to, to make a stand? And we handed out notices saying, be part of the solution and not the problem. And they said, we're going to run a family event once a month for now. But this is what's, this is what's coming to this community. We had to tell all of our own families, you know, anyone who any of you using drugs, dealing drugs, you're part of the problem. We can't have it anymore. We've had enough. We walked around. We put the notices under doors. We spoke to people, and then we started the event. And we asked people to come and volunteer uh, their services. All sorts of artists got down here and kept doing it. That has become infectious. What we've seen right now is we know that we've got, you know, people still doing business, but we don't see them no more. We don't see them, um, and they're not welcome. They're not welcome. But the block can change, a lot of places can change. You're hearing the sounds of Redfern Station. It's where a lot of people who visit the block alight from the train, cross over the road and head down Everly Street. Here we meet Lionel. He's been a resident of Redfern for over 35 years. My name's Lionel Pittman, born and raised in Redfern. Uh, I'm an artist, sportsman and walkabout man. Grew up in Walker Street, Redfern. I uh, attended the Boys Brigade in George Street. Yeah, I, I grew up on the block before it all got torn down. There used to be like tin shacks, working people. There's not too many working people there today. But yeah, it wasn't, it was It was sort of, sort of, Battling, but yeah, 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 but you got your food on the table, you know what I mean? I was there when I think, I'm not sure, was it Malcolm Fraser or Gough Whitlam that opened up the, the black market for uh, Uncle Tony Munn? Believe you me, the whole block was happy that uh, we had a market for all, all the people on the block. Oh, in them days, we call it the Mish for the mission. Everybody was over the moon for Uncle Tony. And even, even when I was short, they'd say, yeah, yeah, don't worry, just fix it up on payday, you know what I mean? Give them tick, as they say. Um, and then that's when we started putting in another football team. 
I think they were called the Lewis Street Dodgers, and that was Uncle Mickey and Uncle Tony's team. They were like Canberra Raider colours. So we had Redfin All Blacks, Zetland All Blacks, Lewis Street Dodgers. I played for the Redfin All Blacks, played front rower. That's going back many moons ago. Uh, well, this is, uh, well, I might as well say it's heritage to me. It's heritage side of the block, Redfern, the mission. Because my father's worked there. He worked there as a labourer for the block. Um, same as Tony, Uncle Tony, and his brothers and their kids. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not into politics or, or an activist like that, but I love my land, you know what I mean? A bit further down the street from where Lionel was standing, you come to the Allura Tony Mundine gym. Anthony Mundine Sr., the Tone Mundine Lionel mentioned, is the owner of this gym. It was built in the 70s, shortly after the Aboriginal housing company acquired land for the block. Over the past few years, there have been plans to redevelop the block, which has received a mixed reaction from the community. Just months ago, eviction notices were issued to residents. As part of the block redevelopment plans, the current gym will be knocked down and a new gym built at the top of the block. Jesse Cox went down to meet some of the regulars. Let's go inside. You enter the gym around the other side of the mural, on the corner of Everly Street and Vine Street. You climb an old staircase covered with boxing posters. And when you get to the top, you realise that the entire place, all the walls, are covered with newspaper clippings, more boxing posters, and these black and white photographs of boxers who used to come and train at the gym. One afternoon, I met Barry Raff. Barry has been coming to the gym pretty much since the beginning, since it opened in the 1970s, and these days trains young up-and-coming boxers. He took me to a small photo on the wall of when the gym had just opened. Just one big, big empty space there, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, that was it. Has it changed much in, in those 20 years you've been coming? It has not changed at all. It was exactly the same. <laughs> A few bags have come and gone, but uh, it has not changed. One morning at the gym, I met a boxer who described that he thought the charm of the place was that it felt like it was an old boxing gym from the movies. And it kind of does feel like that. It feels almost as if I've stepped into the set of an old Rocky movie. The room is divided in two. On one half is where all the weights machines are, the exercise bikes, and a big space in front of a mirror where the boxers come to warm up before they start fighting. The other half is quite densely packed. It's where all the punching bags are, and also the boxing ring. Most people seem to know each other, and there are also a lot of kids around the gym, mostly Alex's. He's the guy who manages the place. The kids crawl all over the weights, treating it like a giant jungle gym, but the boxers don't seem to mind. There is a really loud beeping in the background. This is a machine that is always on at the gym, and it replicates each three-minute round in the ring. The gym, like many other buildings on the block, is soon to be demolished as part of the redevelopment. I asked Barry what people thought about the changes. Most people are pissed, you know, they're very upset about it, but uh, this gym has, has been a wonderful, uh, just a 
it's like a church, mate, you know. I mean, people just come here and do their time here and uh, develop their fitness. It's an interest, it's a hobby, you know. 25 years ago, Barry trained a young boxer by the name of Johnny. Also a promoter, Barry had given Johnny a fight on the undercard of a bout he was putting on at the Canterbury Sports Club. When I first came to the gym, I met Johnny, who had just come back after not fighting for 14 years. This used to be my life, you know, it was my world. I boxed ever since I was 11 with the old man. And, um, you know, it like, keeps me head above water, just keeps me out of trouble by coming down here and, you know. And hopefully, you know, after I give up, I'm, you know, I might be able to give back and help a couple of the young kids. So, yeah. And how come you haven't boxed for 14 years? Um, due to a drug addiction. Yeah, I lost my old man due to cancer and um, had a couple of operations. Um, I was addicted to morphine, I got addicted to morphine, you know, during um, my injuries and things. And um, next step, I'm using heroin, so. It's been a, a very, very hard life, you know. I've, um, you know, since I stopped fighting, I've, you know, I never had a police record, and I got myself into so much trouble with the coppers, just doing some horrific things that I would not have done unless, you know, I, I, you know, I, if I didn't have an addiction. Because uh, heroin's just like not just a physical addiction, but a, a very mental addiction as well. So, um, yeah, as I said, you know, this keeps my head above water doing my training and, you know, my faith in God is what's got me back here again, I think. Because, honestly, mate, I should have been dead a hundred times over. So, the only addiction I've got at the moment is, mate, I smoke f***ing ciggies, you know what I mean? But if that's the worst things can get, you know, it's not too bad. And my other addiction's here, so... Johnny is about six foot tall. He's got a shaved head and his body is almost entirely covered with tattoos. Tells a life story. Yeah, I've got a lot of holy tattoos. My mum's Maltese, so I've got the Maltese cross on the left shoulder. Dad's Irish, so I've got um, the three-leaf clover. of Hail Mary across the chest, because my mum's name's Mary, and uh, Jesus' mum's name's Mary. And my mum's put up with a hell of a lot since I've been in this addiction, so I, I do hail my mother Mary, you know? As well as having Hail Mary tattooed across his chest, Johnny also has St Jude tattooed in his arm. I've got St Jude on the, on the left arm, patron saint for hopeless and desperate cases. Johnny's relationship with St Jude started when he was three. He had an accident where all his tendons in his hand got cut. He was told that he would never move his fingers again, that he would have his hand in a hook for the rest of his life. So his dad went to church brought back some St Jude oil, poured it on his cast, and according to the story, Johnny started moving his fingers straight away. As well as returning to the gym and getting off heroin, Johnny has also started work as an actor. One of his sponsors, who also spent time behind bars, set up an acting agency called Knockabouts, 
It specialises in casting extras with a bad boy look. With Johnny's tattoos and boxing history, he was a perfect match and has been on screen a couple of times. That's, that's given me a lot of inspiration to stay clean as well. It's a lot harder to have put your bum on a seat going to a meeting every day than it is to get out there and fight 12, three minute rounds, you know? I'm in the battle of my life here at the moment, trying to, trying to stay, off, stay away from heroin. So, yeah, it's just, thank God I'm here again. There's a little fellow there and they see the star on his trunks. He wasn't, he wasn't a Jew, he was, a, he was an Aboriginal boxer, but he was a great little puncher. He um, ended up being a derelict drunk. Most of the stories that Barry told me about the boxers on the wall also came with a chapter about addiction, either drugs or alcohol. Barry told me that when many boxers finish their career, there is this great void, this sense of emptiness, and that's why many turn to drugs and alcohol as a way of filling it. Then Barry told me that when he was fighting, he also suffered from addiction. Well, I sort of had a bit of a bit of a history with drugs. I had a bit of a drug problem for many years, and uh, I've been clean 25, near 25 years now. But I sort of got into that side of it. And you see, in the in the boxing game too, a lot of a lot of the people that get into it, when the boxing career is finished, there's a void, and you see a lot of them turn to drink or drugs and things like that. And uh, probably the same with me. But, I suppose it's like when you, someone trains to go to war, it builds some character, you know, it builds a... And at the same time, there has to be a deprogramming of that thing. Like I said before, when some people, uh, you know, they live that whole career of being a boxer and things like that, and then when it stops, there's a void, you know. I think people should be aware of that too, to do have some kind of deprogramming. You hear it about in the Olympics and things like that, and as soon as the career's over, they turn to the bottle or, you know, want to fill the void. Not just boxing, but I think a lot of things can be like that too, eh? You can lose yourself in something and you think this is all it is and you know, there's more to life, eh? Life is the best left hook. Wouldn't you agree with that, Ray? Is that right? Life is the best left hook. <laughs> Beyond boxing, life. Yeah. It sorts us all out. Barry Raff trainer in Redfern Gym regular. Barry has been coming to the gym since it first opened in the 70s. That was part one of The Block, an episode we first aired back in 2010. We chose to share this episode with you as part of our retrospective series as it captures a moment in time that's still incredibly important for us to reckon with today. The destruction of areas of cultural significance to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people and more specifically the growing inaccessibility of Redfern to those who have found home, family and community in the area is still an issue in 2022. We've posted some links to actions fighting for affordable housing and fighting evictions in our show notes. Please check them out. This episode featured stories produced by Kath Lim, Madeline James and Jesse Cox. Eliza Salos presented the episode and Gina McEwen was the supervising producer. Tune in for part two of The Block 
next week. You've been listening to All the Best on FBI 94.5. You can listen back to our full archive of more than 500 episodes on our website, allthebestradio.com. I'm Danny Stewart. Thanks for listening.